Hello, and welcome to a new season of The Blacklist, where we explore the lives and legacies of classic Black Hollywood stars. But you don't know what it is to look white and be black. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the Milton Fincher I spent a lot of time this past year reading and researching for fun, but also because I had no idea what to make this third season about. And I uncovered something that I had no idea even existed in as profound a way that it did. By reading Donald Bogle's Bright Boulevard's Bold Dreams, The Story of Black Hollywood, a novel that should be required reading, I was stunned to learn that in 1920s Hollywood, the biggest African-American star was eight years old. This season, we're going to explore the lives of several of the biggest and most impactful stars in Black Hollywood history, all of which were children when they made headlines. You've heard endlessly about the lives of child stars like Shirley Temple, Mickey Rooney, and Judy Garland. Now let me tell you about the roller coaster lives of the original young Black Hollywood. Now let's get into the new season and today's subject. This week, we discuss a kid who went from amateur night on Central Avenue to being the first black kid in talkies and a career in Hollywood that lasted seven decades. Our subject this week is Eugene Jackson. Eugene Jackson II was born December 25th, 1916 in Texas to Eugene I and mother Lily Foster Jackson Baker who decided to relocate to L.A. after two failed marriages. So she took Eugene and his brother Freddie Jackson to L.A., and to say their lives would never be the same is an understatement. When they arrived in L.A., Eugene recalled how, quote, busy the historically black Central Avenue, the YMCA, the Second Baptist Church, and the oldest and second oldest black fire station this was the Black Belt of Los Angeles. It was a Broadway. I'd never seen so many colored people in my life. I was like a windmill turning my head and twirling my body so as not to miss a scene, end quote. Now, if you've lived in L.A. any time this century, you might find yourself avoiding Central Avenue at any and all costs, because if I've learned anything about L.A. during my short time here, it's that it's disgusting. But during the 20th century... Central Avenue was the spot. Black clubs, black restaurants, black entertainers, black excellence all up and down that strip. Everywhere you looked, there was something or someone for young and old black people to aspire to, to connect with, to escape to. It was a place where black people bought land and built empires. It was probably black LA's most famous street during the 20th century. Everyone including Hattie McDaniel, Stephen Fetchett, the Dandridge sisters, Lena Horne, Sidney Poitier. Honestly, you name it. They were there. It was black prosperity personified. And for a young, impressionable black kid from the South, it was more than he could have ever dreamed for himself. Suddenly, 
the possibilities for his future became much more varied than work and survive and go home and work and survive and go home until you die. There was another way. His mother Lillian found work as a maid in Hollywood, which was usually the way into the movie industry for most black people, and probably some method acting research for their future on-screen roles. Okay, that's not funny, but it's more of a ding at Hollywood than anything. Anyways, back to Eugene. As the Jacksons settled into life in Hollywood, everyone caught the Hollywood bug. The whole Jackson family was entranced by the movies. It was Eugene's grandfather who frequently took him to the Rosebud Theater, which was the colored theater in L.A. on Central Avenue, and there he saw all the work of the greats, the biggest stars in Hollywood. Eugene said of the films he watched as a child, quote, Saturday matinees would star such giants as Tom Mix Hoot Gibson and Harry and William Desmond, end quote. And on a rare occasion, some of them were black, like Charles Gilpin, who he would later briefly work with in the film Hearts and Dixie before Gilpin drank himself out of a job, and eventually he drank himself to death at the relatively young age of 52. But that's another story for another time. For a young, impressionable Eugene, being surrounded by this level and this concentration of Black excellence, it was only a matter of time before he got involved. The Rosebud Theater held an amateur night, like the one at the Apollo, and Eugene sang and danced his way into everyone's hearts and the first place prize, which was a large box of groceries that he gave to his mother. But he couldn't stop there. He liked the way winning and cheering felt far too much to make it a one-time thing. He went back and competed in the amateur night contest so often and won so often that they named him the Shimmy King. And the owner told his mother that her son had star potential, movie star potential. Now, I'm not sure if up to this point they had ever really considered themselves a showbiz family or if they had ever considered Eugene and his brother Freddie for that kind of work. But their lives, once again, would never be the same. Eugene recalled in his autobiography, quote, When I was seven, Mama and I boarded the W Yellow Streetcar for Thomas Rice Studios for a part in her reputation. A little boy was needed to fall into a fish pond. The pay was $5, but I did such an excellent job of showing fear with my big eyes that I was paid $7.50, end quote. From that point on, Eugene became a regular in auditions, conversations, and goings-on at Black Hollywood Studios when it came to Black children. He once said that the studios preferred Black kids with dark complexions, big lips, and kinky hair for obvious racist reasons, but it kept him employed and among some elite talent. In 1925, he played Humidor in one of Mary Pickford's most successful films, Annie Rooney, about a girl in a child gang wreaking havoc on the streets of small town USA. And they all eventually come together and learn a lesson. It's classic Mary Pickford silent film and was one of the highest grossing films of 1925. If you don't know who Mary Pickford is today, that's fine. That's understandable, as our culture has moved completely away from celebrating silent films. But if you had said any time during the 20th century that you didn't know who Mary Pickford was, everyone would assume that you had just woken up from a 50-plus year coma and have never seen or heard of the term motion picture. Mary Pickford is OG Hollywood royalty, 
and one of the 36 original founders of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, a.k.a. the Oscars. So for a nine-year-old Eugene to have been featured in a film with her is a much bigger deal than words can actually describe. And, actually, if you ever found yourself in the Mary Pickford Theater at the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences in Hollywood, you'd see Eugene in the poster of Little Annie Rooney with Mary and the rest of the cast. But the road to stardom is not a straight shot to the top, especially not if you're black. So Eugene kept busy in L.A. between gigs by bettering himself for the moment that big break came, if it ever would. He studied dance and acting with the Loretta Butler, who ran probably the most famous and well-known black L.A. dance studio out of her own home. Through the years, many students came through there, like the Dandridge sisters, who we'll get to next week. Any black person who was anyone in L.A. sent their kids to study dance at the Loretta Butler studio. And Eugene was in good company. But dance classes don't come cheap. And the money from bit rolls does eventually run out. So he like most African-American stars, still had to supplement his income somehow. So he worked as a page boy at the Criterion Theater, which was demolished in 1941. So there's now an office building where this huge theater used to be on 7th and Grand. And to keep his name and face in the minds of the crowd at the major movie studios, he sold Collier's magazines at the studios. And even though the magazine is out of print since 1957, Everything that I've read about it suggests that it was similar to The New Yorker. I use the term loosely because who really knows? But it certainly seems like the type of magazine that seemingly liberal studio executives would have read. However, he continued to work in small bit roles on movies with major stars, hoping that somehow along the way, it would lead him to a big break. And it happened that the director of Her Reputation, a 1923 silent film, told Lily, Eugene's mother, that the producer Hal Roach was looking for a new black child actor, probably to replace Sunshine Sammy, who was moving on to other ventures around the same time. So Eugene took a meeting with Hal Roach and said, quote, I met with Mr. Roach, and he liked my natural acting ability. I did some impromptu acting, and he said I had an open freshness with a million-dollar smile. End quote. A star was born. No. A star was realized. Eugene signed a three-year contract with Hal Roach, and in 1925, he started appearing in our gang shorts. He was only the second black series regular in the show's history. The first, of course, being Sunshine Sammy Morrison, which you can hear all about in our first episode of this season. It was there he gained the nickname Pineapple because of his chic and well ahead of his time pineapple-shaped haircut. If you'll remember from our last episode, our gang was the brainchild of producer Hal Roach, and it eventually became the Little Rascals, but it starred children of all different races and sizes. At six years old, he was making more money and had more consistent work than most of the adults in Hollywood, white, black, brown, whatever. The stardom came with perks because Hal Roach treated his kids well, always giving them new toys, suits from Lux department stores, and the R-Gang merchandise, which plastered their faces on every conceivable, sellable item, made the children stars. But much like Sammy, Eugene's powers grew too big to contain it to his R-Gang commitment. So he left R-Gang before his contract ended to act in many, many, many movies with huge stars like Douglas Fairbanks, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Irene Dunn, Clark Gable, to name a few. 
He said of this, and of the caliber of stars that he acted alongside. I was hot as a firecracker, popping from one studio to the next, working on two or three studios a day. I would be picked up by a limousine at one studio and dashed to the next. Can you imagine being barely tall enough for your feet to touch the floor and having a limousine drive you to work every day while being black in the 1920s? He was doing so well as a child that he bought his family a house. He was raised in front of the camera like many child stars. His entire childhood was lived on movie sets, but the performance didn't end when the camera stopped rolling. He did have to tap dance a bit for the white actors off screen like black performers did because white people felt that sense of ownership over black people they considered amusing enough to befriend. And so they expected a level of entertainment from the black stars in exchange for their friendship because they view these black people as exceptional and different from the rest of their lazy, uninteresting race. Maybe I'm reaching a little bit, but not really. Anyway, back to Eugene. In 1927, he was featured in an uncredited role in the 1927 version of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which probably remains the most infamous or famous, I can't decide which word, fixed version of that film. But all of the major black characters in the film were played by white actors, because for every step forward Hollywood takes, they take 10 steps back. That isn't to say that the tides weren't turning for black actors, because with the introduction of sound into the film industry, came the black movie musical. Now, no one is saying that all of these black talky movie musicals came from an altruistic place in the hearts of studio moguls, not at all. But it certainly opened the doors of black representation like never before. And with Eugene Jackson's appearance in the 1929 Hearts and Dixie, he became the first black child star to appear in talkies. And his skills as a dancer came in handy for the talkies. Hearts and Dixie starred Step and Fetch It and Clarence Muse, and is set to celebrate African American music and dance in characters with dignity who were not slaves. So you know what that means. Now, obviously, you have to take this with a grain of salt, as it is coming from a white studio, a white director, a white producer, a white screenwriter, and thus contains a great deal of pandering. However, critic Alan Locke said of Hearts and Dixie, quote, its greatest artistic triumph is that of the Negro voice in song and speech, end quote. The introduction of sound was enough to shock the film industry, but this was next level major. And Eugene was only 13 years old. Now, as far as whether or not you can actually watch this movie, the only evidence I found that it isn't lost to history, like a great deal of silent films, is from the Library of Congress website that says there may or may not be a copy of the film in the registry, whatever that means. During the 1930s, Eugene and his brother Freddie worked at any and every studio that they could. They spent the years 1935 to 1937 at Disney Studios dancing for the Dumbo movie. But of course, like many black actors, they weren't fairly compensated. Film scholar and family friend says, quote, As a side note, Eugene and his brother Freddie were rotoscoped by the Disney Studio and their dancing was used for the crows in Dumbo, end quote. And you can see frame grabs from their footage in Mindy Aloff's book, Hippo in a Tutu, Dancing in Disney Animation. In the 1920s and 30s, he appeared in vaudeville shows billed as Hollywood's most famous colored star. 
And at 16, he headlines his own vaudeville tour and he danced and sang in 89 cities and 16 states before returning to film in the 30s and 40s in the Harlem Tough Kids, which was like the black equivalent of the Dead End Kids or the Bowery Boys or the East Side Kids or whatever name you call them. They were a group of young, scruffy-looking actors who got into a lot of shit in their films. But with his face looking less and less childlike, and the industry changing rapidly as the years moved on, there was less and less work for actors who looked like Eugene. Vaudeville was dead, and the work became roles like congregation member and office worker. This isn't to say that he didn't work consistently, because he did. There wasn't a year in his career that he didn't appear in a film after the decline of his childhood stardom. But it wasn't like before. He wasn't being driven around from studio to studio in a limousine that stretched a mile long. But in 1968, he was a regular on the series Julia, the first network sitcom to have an African-American woman as lead. Rest in peace, Diane Carroll. Ugh. He played Julia's uncle. but. After that, there was almost nothing. His last major role was in the Addams Family movie in 1991, playing a one-armed musician. And in 1999, he wrote an autobiography titled Eugene Pineapple Jackson. And on October 26, 2001, at the age of 84, Eugene died of a heart attack in Compton. He was survived by his wife of 55 years, Sue Jackson, and his three children. His career spanned 75 years. He saw the industry change at a pace that killed many of his friends and peers. The constant fluctuation of his place and of black people's place in the film industry in general almost gave him the same fate. It's the most frustrating thing to read and learn about trailblazing black heroes like Eugene Jackson, only for most of the stories to end the same way. He died in obscurity. His name not feature in the vast majority of the credits of the films he appeared in. I can't say whether or not he felt the same way, and I don't mean to diminish the life he led after his childhood stardom, because it very well could have been the life that he wanted to live. I understand that people measure success differently, but a person as trailblazing as Eugene Jackson was at the age of six should be burned into our memories and written into our history books as more than a footnote. Eugene once said, my gift from God was a flair for entertaining. And that is how he should be remembered. Not as a background actor, not as an extra, but as the essence of what it took to be a black performer during this era. To take pride and joy in his ability to do the thing he loved most in life, perform. Thank you, Eugene, for the space you created for us. I hope you feel the appreciation from wherever you're resting. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Blacklist, which is hosted, written, and researched by Mariah Woods and brought to you by Textured Air. If you like this, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you're alerted when we drop episodes. All episodes can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and podcast.com. Be sure to check out our website, texturedair.com, for more content celebrating Black women. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Textured Air for updates. Until next time.